Welcome to the Brilliantly Resilient Podcast. What's your train wreck? Everyone has one. The question is, are you going to live there or are you just visiting? Let's check in with Mary Fran and Kristen to learn how to come through not broken, but brilliant. Hey everyone, before we dive into this week's episode, we have a resource that we wanted to tell you about. Transform every week of yours with our Brilliance Bit that will deliver right to your email inbox. Sign up for it at brilliantlyresilient.net and keep living brilliantly resilient. Hey, welcome to this brilliant treat. We are resharing one of our most favorite guests of all time and a good friend of ours. David Fagenbaum, you are just going to have value bombs, brilliance bombs galore in this episode where David talks about one of our most favorite things that we've learned in the entire time we've been doing this show, and that is how to create silver linings when you can't find silver linings. I mean, that is just one of the mega brilliance bits that, that he gives us in this. So tune in and enjoy our buddy, David Fagenbaum. And welcome to another episode of Brilliantly Resilient Live. We are so excited to have one of, you know, I we are self-proclaimed, me and Mary Fran are self-proclaimed resilience rock stars. And now <laughs> we are in the presence of an ultimate resilience rock star. I warned the group. So if you didn't read the post this morning, peeps, I warned y'all to load up on coffee. I went running on the trails in Tyler to focus my mind for all the cool stuff that you're going to hear from my good friend and rare disease and resilience rock star, David Fagenbaum. Thanks so much for coming on this morning. Kristen, thanks for having me on. I've loved seeing the show and love seeing what you guys are doing. And I'm so happy I got to be a part of it. And, and I also should say to all of you, because our group is from all over the place, it's another Philly rock star, people. This is the town. This is the right. town to be in. <laughs> so we met, I was trying to remember when Mary Fran and I uh, opened up the Zoom, how long ago, and I want to say it was probably four years ago at the Penn, yep. Penn hosted the Global Genes event. I, I remember. sat there in awe. And I, I remember feeling the same way. I, I introduced you and, I, and I'm and i reading your, you know, here I am for the first time reading your bio and I hadn't seen it yet. I'm like, oh, wow, this is really impressive. And then, uh, and then when I heard you talk, I was just so amazed. Well, it's funny because I said to Mary Fran, you know, when I first heard you talk, it's a good thing if I was five years in to CRB1.org, my nonprofit, because I, I would have been like, whoa. After hearing everything you did, I would have been like, I could never do all of that. And I think I would have felt the same way if I had heard myself or you talk when I first started. I think that, as you know, it, it, these these journeys are, are long and, and they take a lot of work. Yeah. And I think that's what's important as people, as we go into your story, I think it's very important for those watching and listening to remember that we you had no idea where your journey was going to go. I had no idea where mine was going to go. I mean, all of us in ours, we talk about reset, rise, and reveal your brilliance. I think it's so daunting sometimes to people that they think, I could never do that. But when you are, I mean, we all have resilience built in, is what Mary Fran and I always talk about. It's not something you learn. It's there. You uncover it when you have mm -hmm. to, and you really can do hard things. Yeah. Especially motivation is there. So let's let's start off um, with a little bit of the background. I, I let folks know that you were a, it's 
five times that this rare disease almost killed you, right? That's right. Yeah, I first got sick when I was a, a medical student here in Philadelphia. I was a third year med student. I was training to become an oncologist in memory of my mom, who I had lost just a few years before. And out of nowhere, um, I was in the ICU just, just down the road with uh, multi-organ failure. My liver, my kidneys, my bone marrow, my heart, and my lungs were all shutting down. And we had no idea what was causing it. And I spent the next 11 weeks hospitalized in critical condition. And I eventually, I was so sick during this time that I actually had a priest come in and administer my last rites to me. And I, I really considered that moment to kind of be the start of my overtime, time that I didn't think that I would have, um, but of course, time that I'm, I'm trying to make the most of. And I finally got diagnosed 11 weeks in, thankfully, because with the diagnosis came chemotherapy that saved my life. I was diagnosed with a disease called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease and um, got a diagnosis, got treatment. And unfortunately, I would go on to have many, many more, more relapses. That's unbelievable. You know, David, I was thinking about that, that whole idea of overtime. And I think, you know, regardless of the details of people's challenges, when you're at the beginning and you get hit with that, you think this is it. This is the end. I am never going to be able to get out of this, whatever it is. And that idea that you had that, you know, that when you finally thought, okay, this is, I made this part, I got through this, this is the beginning of my overtime. And if we can look at it that way, there's always that opportunity to just take that one step that maybe moves you a little closer. And it's a journey. It, it doesn't happen all at once, as you certainly found. I totally agree with you. I think that um, if I had been told at the very beginning of my journey that, David, you're going to spend most of the next six months hospitalized, you're going to be in critical condition, you're going to bounce back and forth between basically being on the brink of death and life, and you're going to suffer through so much pain. I don't know if I could have, I don't know if I could have been resilient enough to say, okay, I've got this. But yeah. what I could do is I could say, I can make it through today and I can breathe today. I don't know about tomorrow, but let's just focus on today and I can deal with it today. And so then all of a sudden you get through those six months and you say, wow, I did it. You know, I made it through these six months, but for me, um, I guess I don't have the mental strength to be able to say I can do this forever, but we can, we can always, you know, we can, we can handle tough things in short periods of time. I, I am Mary Fran's thing. Clearly, here's, here's the book, The 15-Minute Master. I didn't even aspire to a day. You know, my, my story is that my son, um, my son was addicted to heroin and, and alcohol and all this, and it went on for years and years and years, as, you, as your experience has. And you do, you, 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 we cannot cope with that kind of overwhelming stress and mm -hmm. pressure but we can cope with small chunks of time yes. so we were i always say when you know when he was crazy and banging on the bedroom door that i was locked on the other side of like okay i just have to get through 15 minutes mm -hmm. and when you do break it down into those manageable chunks if you can stay in that mindset then you get on the other side of it eventually Absolutely. i totally agree with you and that's it's it works in both ways mary friend what you're saying during the tough times but also kristen what you were saying with what we've built for our respective rare diseases if you were to again talk to both of us before we got started on our journey and said these are all the things that you're going to need to do to get to where you want to get to I don't know if I would have said I'm in. I think I'd have been like, oh my gosh, that's so tough. I can't <laughs> I imagine. I'm not going to be sleeping. I'm going to be working like a crazy person all this time. But, um, you know, one day at a time, one email at a time, one phone call at a time. Um, and, and then we've been able to, you know, achieve some of the things that we were hoping for. 
Yeah. You know, when we were just at that event that we just did again for Global Genes in the fall in Philly, yeah. Megan O'Boyle was in the, in the audience and we had just talked about, and I made sure that I said it to the crowd, that her and I just talked about, thank God we didn't know when we started. She's on uh, Phelan McDermott syndrome for those that don't know her. Thank God we didn't know when we started because we never would have done it and little by little, but it's, it's amazing to look back even mm -hmm. day by day when you yep. were at the end of the day to look back at where you started your day when you're really in the thick of the pit yep. and see that you, oh, I'm still here. Yep. I'm still making it. Um, and, and honestly, this is translating now that uh, I was telling you in an email that my dad um, is going through an issue, right? A health issue right now. And that's what I have to, I realized last night I have to tell him, Dave, let's just do this one day, yep. this one day, because it just seems so daunting. How am I going to get to this, to the end mm -hmm. of this? Let's just yep. take one day. And you must have experienced that with your, I mean, with your situation. So take us through, here you are in the hospital and nobody knows what to do. How did you end up literally helping to find a cure for your own illness? Yeah, so I was finally diagnosed. I got chemotherapy. Um, this disease is so poorly understood because so few people have researched it over the years. It's a rare disease and had really been neglected. And because we don't know why our immune system attacks our vital organs, um, we give chemotherapy, like just kind of blunt, kill everything, because we don't know what to target. And thankfully, it saved my life. But unfortunately, I relapsed again a few weeks later, spent another two months hospitalized, nearly died again. Um, this time, I got a combination of seven different chemotherapies, kind of like the worst cocktail or combo that you could imagine at the highest doses possible. And it just completely destroyed my immune system in a good way. And it saved my life. Actually, the I, I get what's called a cytokine storm, which is where my immune system attacks my vital organs, which um, I, I thought I was the only person who liked to use the term cytokine storm, but that's actually been in the news a lot lately because unfortunately, the cytokine storm that happens in COVID-19 is actually what makes it so deadly. So it's a very similar cytokine storm, immune activation and immune attack that kills patients with my disease that also unfortunately kills people with COVID-19. And so I went through the third one of those cytokine storms um, and I was started on an experimental drug that I was so thankful for. Um, we had hoped and prayed that there would be a drug that could save my mom's life and, um, and that drug never came to be. And she passed away a few years before I became ill. So when this drug came to a clinical trial right around the time that I was dying in the hospital, we thought, you know, maybe this is it. Maybe this is that, that treatment, that cure that we've been, you know, praying for that my mom didn't get, but it's, it's there for me. And so I was started on it soon after I got chemotherapy and we really hoped that it would keep me in remission. I was able to go back to med school for a few months and, and kind of back on track to be an oncologist. And then I, I relapsed on that drug and um, I nearly died for the fourth time. And what was so difficult about relapsing on that drug wasn't, <clears throat> it wasn't just the, um, the physical pain and, and challenge of going through another relapse, but it was the mental anguish of realizing that I had now failed to respond to the only drug in development for my disease and that there were no more drugs in development. This was the, this was my only hope. And, and now it was out of the window and it really, um, for, for me, I, I'm such a hopeful medical student. I kind of believe science has the answers and doctors are out there figuring things out. And then all of a sudden to be told by my doctor, who's the world's expert, that there were no more drugs in development, there were no more promising leads, and, um, and that there basically was nothing more that we could do. And um, 
that's when my whole mindset really changed. And that's where um, I turned to my dad and my sisters and my girlfriend at the time, Caitlin, and I said, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life, however long this may be, to trying to identify a treatment or maybe a cure for Castleman disease. And um, I don't think they, you know, uh, were too optimistic. I don't think I was too optimistic. I think that, um, to quote Dumb and Dumber, I think um, I was probably thinking about like a one in a million chance. So, so you're saying so there's you're a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> I think that there was probably about a one in a million chance. Um, but but I think that I looked at it by saying, look, if there's a zero in a million chance if I don't do anything, the world's expert has just told me zero in a million or one in a million. And um, so I, you know, I decided to, 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 so you're saying there's a chance, um, which I think is about as smart as, as, uh, as the guys in Dumb and Dumber, but I, I decided to, to take that chance. And um, I, I worked really hard for the next year and um, I relapsed again um, on chemotherapy. And so all of my hard work was kind of not enough. I, I nearly died for the fifth time. This time my uh, girlfriend, Caitlin, was now my fiance. And I so badly wanted to make it to our wedding day and really inspired by that sort of time horizon. I needed to get it to May 24th, 2014. I um, uh, was able to really dig into the data, perform a series of experiments that led me to think that a particular drug could work for me, a drug that was approved 30 years ago for another condition. And I started myself on it and um, just hoped that maybe it could work. And, and now it's been over six years that I've been in remission on this drug. Isn't that amazing, my friend? Unbelievable. You know, you said at this, and I was reading, I was reading your, um, your info before, and I hooked into this, don't stop at hoping. Yes. Like that, that just says everything. I mean, you said it's a one in a million chance. How likely is it that any of this is going to work? But it did. You know, we have to try. We have to try. And that's the message behind all of this. Hope has to inspire action. I think that for so long I was hopeful and almost in our society and in life, sometimes we think about it as kind of binary. You either hope and pray or you act and, you know, and, and, and move. And I think that what you, what I really think we should all work towards is, is a way to bring the two together where it's, yeah. we hope and we pray. And then we say, well, what am I hoping for? Okay. Well, whatever I'm hoping for should also drive my action. So I should do the things that I can to help get us closer to what I'm hoping for. It's actually the subtitle of my book, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action, to get from just hoping to taking action. Yeah. And I think that that's the message that people miss in the, I know I grew up in a very faith-based house and, and I, I, which was wonderful. Thank God, because I had a foundation to go back to, even though I kicked and screamed away from it for a while. But I think that I, I missed that message of if you hope and pray, if you hope and pray and you hope and pray, and then it's like, well, wait a minute, you gotta, you got, there's that joke that they, the guy's on the top of the roof and the flood's coming and he's oh, yeah. praying for God and they come with a boat. He's like, God's coming. All right. And then he dies, you know, and God's like, I sent you the boat. I sent you the, you know, the helicopter. I, yeah. I sent you all this stuff. Yeah, you got to do everything you can while you're hoping and praying. And a flip, I guess I hadn't heard that joke before, but the other side of it would be to say, you know, I, I gave you the legs, I gave you the hands to, to do, I gave you the, the brain to build. And it, it's, yeah. you know, and that's kind of the situation I think that we're in where, yeah, 
I think that we have to, you know, take our hopes and our prayers and, and use it to inspire action, even if we think it's unlikely that the thing that we're hoping for is necessarily going to happen. I think that we can feel confident, um, unfortunately, that it will not happen unless someone takes action and that someone in the rare disease space oftentimes has to be us. I mean, I, I wish that some other researcher somewhere was doing the work and I could, you know, just follow along my path and been great. That would have been, that would have been awesome. Um, but, but I knew that if I didn't do it, that no one would. I think that's how that, those things usually happen. If, if not for you, then who? Exactly. You know, like if not, if not for the person who has the need, then, then who's going to take it up? I mean, at exactly. some point, our, um, we, we spoke to a woman yesterday, Lachelle Atkins, and, and one of the things that she said was she used fear as fuel mm-hmm. to, to like you know, to move forward. And I certainly imagine you were in that situation. I mean, you had almost died five times yeah. and we're being told there's nothing. So what other option do you have? And, you know, I go back to my childhood where I always heard, because my parents, my father was like, well, you got to you know, work. We had the work ethic. And it was mm-hmm. the whole you know, God helps those who help themselves things. Mm-hmm. So if not for us, who? Exactly. And I heard uh, a talk from Nick Saban recently. Um, Nick Saban, the, the uh, famous head coach at Alabama. And um, he, in his talk, a uh, football coach at Alabama, he was saying that um, too often people pl- pray for blessings as opposed to pray to be a blessing. You know, maybe we should pray to be a blessing to someone else. And the best part about when you, when you send up that kind of prayer is that you can do it. You know, it's, it's up to you, you know, you, you pray to be a blessing and then, and then go be a blessing to someone, um, you know, one step in front of the other and go do that thing that you want to do. Yeah. And, and I think that that, what you just said that that coach said is exactly the crowd that gathers in the rare disease community when oh, they're yeah. together. Cause I, I it, it never fails. By the time the global genes event happens in the fall, I am so tired. It's something about that time, I guess, cause the, you know, sending kids off to college and school yeah. and, and we're winding down on making sure we hit all the fundraising goals and the research. And, and then I get there and I'm so tired. And then you sit in that room, yeah. thousands of people that every one of them is, is on pure will. Yeah figuring out how to save their, their own lives, their kids' lives. It's just, it's unbelievable. And they are praying for a blessing and being the blessing at the exactly. exact same time. Yeah, it's uh, I, I love it. That's the most rejuvenating place to be in the world. Yeah. Yeah, it is cool. So, you okay, know, so one, gonna... one thing I'd mentioned too, just thinking about global genes, um, and I think you would totally agree with us, is um, you would think that in a crowd like that, where all of us are either battling a disease or have a loved one with a disease, that the last thing that we would all be doing is like smiling and having fun and laughing. And actually that's like the one thing that we are all doing together. And I think that it, it highlights just how important humor and, and, and positivity is in the midst of really tough times. Um, there were times in, in my case when I was in the ICU and um, I, I certainly uh, wasn't feeling great and, and I didn't have too much energy to laugh, but, but when there were things to laugh about and to smile about with my family, that really connected us. And I think that you guys are great examples. Um, you, you're talking about really heavy stuff on the show, but there are things to smile about. There are things to laugh about it. And sometimes um, that can be really powerful during tough times. 
Yeah, yeah, and that's totally how we came together because people would constantly say it was in, in another project we were working on, and as we people were seeing us together with with people, they're like, "What is the two of you have been through such crap?" <laughs> yeah, you're laughing all the time, you know, and it's like, well, that's kind of how it's close to hysterical laughter, but it's laughter. Plus, we'll we all whatever we can get. That we are the funniest people ever. Like we do, <laughs> we are our own best audience, the two of us. So. Now we're just inviting everyone else in. You're just bringing in someone to laugh at your jokes. Yeah, right. that's exactly right. <laughs> but I love that you brought that up because that's one of the five things that is in, and if we switch gears here for a second, to specifically outline the stuff that you talk about and what you've learned in this whole journey of yours and how we can get through. So we say about getting through this current, I call it a sucker punch, um, the current crisis, what the whole world is in, the COVID crisis, any crisis, we say, how can we help you get through and be brilliant, not broken? Yeah. Your five items. When I said it's very fair, because very fair always like goes berserk when people are on the same wavelength as us. Because, yeah. I mean, we're, you all, this? You know? we're all saying the same stuff. It's great. <laughs> you're on to something. That's what we're always like. Wow, we really do have something here because all we've done is map out how we survive, thrive, yeah. and aren't broken. And but it really is universal. I totally agree. So the first thing that you talked about, you already mentioned it for a second, was that we're on overtime. And I said to Mary Fran when I first told her that I wanted to invite you on the show, I said the thing about you is that you have this, this whole you're in. You seem to be in gratitude all the time that you're here. That you're, you just seem it just it just comes out of you all the time and and now I see as you as you have said in this in the thing that you wrote that we are on overtime. Yeah, exactly. And so when I think about overtime, I, I think about time you didn't think that you'd have in a in a game. Um, it's extra time. You didn't necessarily play your best game to get there. You didn't win it outright. You're you know you're you maybe you're limping into overtime, um, but in overtime. Uh, there's so much focus because the clock is ticking down. Mm. There's really no time for distractions and, and every decision has to be really um, well, well thought out because if you make the wrong move, the game's over. And I think it's, it's a really good analogy for how I feel. Um, uh, you know, I didn't think I would have this time. I, I nearly died five times and, and each of those five times I, I didn't think, well, you know, maybe I'm going to make it through. It was, well, the doctors are telling me this is it. I, um, and so it does make me so grateful to be here. I, I, I get to talk to you guys today and I never thought I would, I would ever be able to be here. And so I'm very grateful, but it also um, gives me a sense of clarity that I, I didn't have before I entered overtime. And that's about what's most important in life. You know, if you think about it in a sporting event, the first quarter of the game, you can drop a pass, you can have a bad play. You might, you might get distracted and you can make up for it. Um, but when you're in overtime, there's no time for that. And I think that that's how I feel today and every day um, is that I have to stay focused on, on the things that are most important because I don't know how much time I have left. And so as I write in, in, in my book and as, as I mentioned in that post, um, I think a big realization for me in light of COVID-19 is that I think that COVID-19 has, I think, made all of us feel a bit like we're in overtime in, in a kind of an uncomfortable way. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think any of us want to recognize kind of how, you know, how fragile life is and how out of nowhere um, it can be taken from us. I think COVID-19 has kind of introduced that in some sense that like out of nowhere, you don't see the virus and then all of a sudden you're in the ICU and it could hit anyone or loved ones. Um, and this is, I think, a sense that many of us in the rare disease community, certainly people with Castleman disease, 
I know that I could relapse at any moment. It's been over six years, but as, as you know, Kristen, I never say almost six and a half because I, I don't round up. I, I know I can't round up. I always say over some number. It's never almost because I, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. But I think this sense of overtime is something that um, can be really scary, but it can also, I think, be really clarifying and give people clarity around what's most important um, uh, during really, really tough times. You know, I, well, of course, I love all your sports references because that's my thing, but I have a, a very, I'll do a very quick story for you on the overtime thing where um, just a different take on it. When you say about, it doesn't matter how you got there to overtime and, and it could be a total mess. Yep. My oldest son, Michael, who played, he decided he went as the blind kid, wanted to play on regular little league teams, right? Nice. So his one team, they ended up, it was, it was by pure rules of little league that every team got to do a play into the playoffs so his team lost every game they were the bad news bears they were so bad that i thought we were going to medicate the coaches nobody would coach them we had to get cops in our town young cops to coach them so anyway they were horrible they got to play in to the play they won the first playoff game and people were like what then they win the second one and it literally was like people were leaving fields to come over and see this team play and we went completely nuts berserk we had signs we had pom-poms whatever they made it all the way to the championship and had three overtime extra innings but it was in those extra innings that our team really fine-tuned and came together because they they had a blind kid on the team and he had to play and they and they really got to be a team throughout that whole season and then won the game wow but yeah, it's, it's such a testament to what you're saying. It could be a disaster getting there, yep. but you're in it. And then yep. what are you going to do with it? Exactly. And, and, and that's how, you know, I think that's how all of us are right now. Yeah. And I think people look at it that way. It takes away all of the frustration, the sadness, the fear, the look, you're in overtime. Yep. What are you going to do with it? Exactly. There's, there's no time to kind of feel sorry for yourself. There's no time to, to be upset about the current situation. Yeah. 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 So turn on the cameras and do a live show every day. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we decided to do. (laughs) So one of your other things was humor, but what, tell, tell me about some of your other steps that you, because they were all so relevant to what's going on right now in addition to your own experience. So I I picked out a handful of them. Um, Well, first I should say that I, I wrote, the book Chasing My Cure because I feel like I've been let in onto some life secrets that I didn't know before I almost died five times. And I feel like these life secrets I needed to share with the world. And so um, as I was thinking about some, what are some of the main lessons I learned from from my experience and from and also chasing a cure, which I think is um, unfortunately what all of us scientists are, are trying to do right now against COVID-19. And um, I boiled it down to, to five of, of the kind of the biggest lessons. And of course, there were there were others that could have fit because, um, you know, this this time is, is really, um, you know, quite unusual. But so for the first one over time, um, the second is this concept of think it, do it. And that is based mm-hmm. on the fact that during each of my times that I was on my deathbed, and it, and it felt funny writing that during all five times I was on, and I was like, is it deathbeds or deathbed? And, and I guess... <laughs> I guess that's kind of like a strange thing to have to figure out, but I guess I'm not sure what the right grammatical way to describe that is, but all five times of that, um, the thing that I regretted the most was not anything that I had done. Um, The things that I regretted were things that I had not done or had not said. 
And that was really eye-opening for me. Um, I think I, I always would have thought that maybe I would have regretted actions I took, but it actually was the lack of things that I, things that I, I thought about doing and didn't do, and the realization that I would not be able to do them. So I, I came up with this motto in my head as I started to improve, and that was think it, do it. If I think about doing something, and it's not a bad idea. I mean, sometimes you think about doing something, and you're like, yeah. I shouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if, if it's if it's a good thing to do, and it's going to help someone, or or, or help, help you know help you do it. Don't kind of talk yourself out of it because those are the things that you regret. And for me, one of those things was related to, to my, my girlfriend at the time. Um, we had actually broken up just before I got sick and I really regretted that I hadn't fought for our relationship. But I had said to myself, well, we're 25 years old. We've got all the time in the world. And then all of a sudden I was like, well, you know, no, we don't have all the time in the world. And so, so think it, do it. Um, the third one's humor and the importance of humor during really tough times. Fortunately, the internet has been supplying us with lots of memes lately, Gosh, yeah. which I think has been, been really helpful for all of our mental health. Um, fourth one is a concept we talked about briefly, um, and that is about this idea of turning hope into action. So if we're hoping for things, if we're praying for things, we need to say, well, what can I do today? And again, it's not like Kristen and I overwhelming ourselves saying, well, we're going to build this giant organization and we're going to develop gene therapies and treatments. And no, it's, you know, I'm going to start fighting this disease and I'm going to take it 15 minutes at a time or, or one day at a time, but let's start turning our hope into action, um, you know, one day at a time. Uh, another is um, how the book is titled Chasing My Cure, but I, I keep feeling like I should have named, named it Chasing Our Cures because it really has been a team effort. And if it was just me on my own, we would have made like one one thousandth of a percentage of the progress that we did, but really it was a, a team effort. And so I think it's really important during these tough times, like we're going through right now with COVID-19, um, to recognize that like we can't do this on our own. Not, none of us can do what we need to do on our own. We really need to lean on, on those around us, whether it's virtually, I, I feel like we're leaning on one another virtually right now, um, or, or certainly in person. And then a sixth one, which I, I couldn't fit into my five, but I'll, I'll give it another one, oh, the yes. last one is um, around creating silver linings. And that is the idea that we're often encouraged to find a silver lining during a tough time. We'll say, oh, well, you know, because of COVID-19, I got to spend more time with my daughter, who I have a, a two-year-old who I do get to spend more time with, which is awesome. That's finding a silver lining. Creating a silver lining is saying, while I'm home, why don't I do something, build something, create something, because I'm home, that will be a silver lining in the midst of this time. So don't just kind of passively find the silver lining, but actually create the silver lining. And um, for me, I've tried to do that with Castleman disease in creating a network. This is a, I don't know how well you can see, this is a Castleman pin. Um, <laughs> I, I run a foundation called the Castleman disease collaborative network, and we've, we've created a Castleman. And, um, you know, building that network has been um, my attempt to create a silver lining out of what's been a really tough time. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, the things that I hooked into, and I said this to Kristen earlier when we were talking about interviewing you, you know, we talk, one of the things that we are, we're really passionate about is not just telling people about uncovering their resilience and, you know, their skills and all that, but then taking your brilliance and revealing it to the world. And that all requires that action step. It yes. requires you to do something. It requires you to think out of the box and that idea of creating. I mean, we, Kristen and I, I think half the reason we laugh too is because both of us are like, 
we walk around half the time going, what's happening? What are we doing? What's going on? Because we don't know. We just, we, <laughs> we just go, hey, let's put on a show. And we do it. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter if it's right. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's perfect. It matters that it's started. Yeah. And then you see where, because everything that you have tried, I'm sure, was part of an evolution. We don't exactly. do it and end it in the same step. And there are a lot of missteps and missteps teach you a lot. I get a lot of medical students and undergrads will come to me with advice about medicine. You know, what project should I get involved in? What research should I do? And, and, and my advice is often, um, so one, follow your passion, go after things that, that make you passionate. But the other is that sometimes you can be wrong and that's okay. If you learn how to run after a problem and, and, it's, and you don't solve it or, or it's not the right problem, that's okay. You've just learned how to run. So then when you find the thing that, you know, is for you, the disease that you want to try to cure or, or whatever your problem is you're trying to solve, you've just, you're a faster runner when you finally get to it. Yeah. 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 I know. Well, and that's hard. See, scientists are used to things, you know, fall apart and, and fail. When I first got into this, I'm like, oh, we're making progress in the Netherlands. We're going to have our gene therapy in like three years. And then it kept failing. And I'm like, Son of a gun! It drove me nuts. It drove me nuts. I, I I will say I don't know if you saw our announcement. But our um our clinical trial is ready. Amazing. Yeah, oh, in the midst so of everyone at the lowest time in all of our lives, I get the email that I waited for nine years for. It's amazing. And it's ready to roll. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's all so, that. I'm so happy to hear that. Keep going is the message there, right? Yeah. That's right. And I, I have to say the fact that you were um, patient enough to think that it could three years would be fast enough. I have to admit, when I started this thing, I was like, all right, you know, three weeks, three months, you know, those are the, the kinds of numbers years. That I was looking at. Yeah, yeah, you didn't have three years. You know, the other thing that you talked about that we talk about all the time is is about the whole idea of building a tribe and going out and, yes. and doing a village. You said it takes an army to do all these things. But what I think we need, one of the things that your story really brings home to me is it's not always the experts who have the answers. Yep. Sometimes it's those people who are in the thick of something, who are dealing with it, who are really looking at it in a slightly different way because they have to. And that's I, what you did. I totally agree. I think that the it, it's it's not an either or, it's an and situation where, you know, it's not that the doctors don't or the patients don't, which unfortunately, if you're a doctor, you think the patients don't. And if you're a patient, you think the doctors don't know. But it really, it's an and problem where you, we need to get these people together. Um, and when you do get them together, there is so much synergy. I mentioned the foundation that I run, the Castle Disease Collaborative Network. Um, bringing together patients, physicians, researchers, advocates all together, we've been able to make so much more progress than any of us um, could have on our own. And actually, I, sh I should also share that the CDCN has recently gotten involved in the COVID-19 fight. So we um, put together a team of 31 volunteers who went through 2,700 papers in a 12-day period, spent about 500 hours between this 30-member team reviewing through every paper that's ever been written about COVID up until March 27th, pulling out every drug that's ever been tried against COVID-19 patients, and um, identified 115 different drugs that have already been tried. And, and this is this concept of drug repurposing, which is something that I'm a, I'm a 
huge proponent of. So I'm on a drug that was developed 30 years ago for another condition, and no one ever thought that it could work for Castleman disease. But my lab work suggested to me that I thought that it could work, and, and I'm, I'm kind of living proof. And so it's made me think a lot about how many other drugs are there out there that are just sitting at my neighborhood CVS that could be a treatment for me or for someone else, and we don't even know about it. And so thankfully, with COVID-19, many people have been reaching for these sort of existing drugs to repurpose because unfortunately there, there was nothing in development because this, this virus didn't exist more than four months ago. Um, and so there is a good attempt to repurpose, but um, I'm a huge proponent when you do repurpose, you have to track what's being given, what's not being given, what's working, what's not working. And so that's kind of our attempt to, to throw our hat in the ring. So our foundation and my lab um, basically redeployed our team for um, about a month, and um, and we're going to continue um, to push forward this project. We we titled it Corona, which is um, COVID um, COVID registry um, of off label uh, off label. I'll have to give you the rest of the acronym. I can't even remember. I just came up with it. I love acronyms. Oh, off-label and new agents. So it's it's a registry of all the treatments that have been used against COVID-19. I love that. And we, we talk cool. about a skill being a skill being a skill. And it's all this stuff where you transfer things from yes. one place to another for a different purpose and a, and a win somewhere else, yes. maybe. So that's another word we can use in that transferring skills is that you are repurposing. Yeah something yeah. you had to use somewhere else. And, and um, of course I did a lot of repurposing other people's work and talents and <laughs> just <laughs> put them on my journey and said, oh, do that for me now. Yes. <laughs> I think repurpose is such a, a cool word because there's multiple meanings too also. It's like, you've got purpose in it too, where it's like, you know, I think we've kind of all repurposed, you know, our, 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 our life purpose has moved from one thing to another mm -hmm. um, and that we're willing to move it based on, what really drives us. And then, you know, we're willing to repurpose those skills in different ways. Yeah, that's amazing. So tell us about your book because I want everybody to know where they can find that and where they can, you know, reach out to you because I, I just have to tell you, I, this has to be one of my favorite episodes because yeah. your story is so, is so touching and, and you're just, and you're like this really smart guy who's just a really great guy to talk to. I which told is, you. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I said, you're not going to believe it. you're going to think he's the smarty, smart doctor coming on and he's just cool. <laughs> See, you got me blushing now. So I'm, so, so I'm, I'm upset that we're on video. Um, thank you. No, it's been, it's been so fun to connect with you guys. And I've always been a, a huge Kristen fan. So now, now I'm your number one fan too, uh, Mary Fran. Oh, thank you. We're all huge Kristen fans. I yes. have to tell her that multiple times a day just to get her to be able to get through and then sleep at night. Just not at five o'clock in the morning. She doesn't let me text her until like eight because i'm oh, up like five with ideas that sounds so unreasonable i mean really i think it sounds okay thank <laughs> you it's just go crazy so right, where so can we find you, David? Where can we find the book? Tell us about that. Sure. So Chasing My Cure um, is available everywhere books are sold. So your favorite local library, Amazon, um, of course, uh, your favorite local bookstore. Um, a lot of places are closed these days. So Amazon's probably your best bet. Um, you can also go to chasingmycure.com. Um, to get kind of all the different places you can get the book and also to um, see some pictures um, from my journey. I think that, you know, sometimes when people see me looking healthy like I do now, it's like, you know, did you really get that sick? And I think that, I think the pictures are actually really, really important. That's a good idea. Everyone should go to your website and see that because you won't believe, you won't believe what David looked like 
um, when he was in the thick of of all of that with the no hair. Oh, you have it? And in the book, so there's actually, there's oh, an right. insert. Right in so I don't know, maybe the, the insert would be good to show. So this is probably the picture you were thinking about. Yes. The ball so is when really I got on. out of the hospital. Look at that. Was, oh my know, this goodness. This is another one of me when I was, you know, after chemotherapy, we talked about all the, um, the chemotherapy drugs that I, that I got that, um, that have saved my life, thankfully. And here's another one from when I was in the ICU. Isn't that wild? Gosh, that's I know, that's when I saw your presentation the first time and to have those visuals, it's like, oh my goodness. So, okay, so that's where you, so, and it, that's also where we have the, you have the information that we talked about today with that article that you did and all. So we've talked about, you know, surviving this five times and now transferring, uh, repurposing to COVID and running this global network and then having this best-selling book. But I have one burning question and I dying to know what was it like to be on Good Morning America? <laughs> I'm like, oh I haven't talked to you about that yet. Was it that was, like it was awesome. It was um it was amazing and um probably the the coolest part of all was that Will Reeve was the reporter who came down to Philadelphia. And you, you guys may not know Will Reeve yet, but you will. It's so, this is uh, Christopher Reeve's son. Of course, Christopher Reeve's oh Superman. Oh. His son, Will, uh, is the most brilliantly resilient guy. He went through so much. He lost both, both parents. parents oh. within one year when he was a teenager. And he was so amazing. He's in this like early to mid 20s he's a really young guy and we sat down in front of the camera and we spoke for like two hours and the producers at the end were like we're gonna shut the cameras off like you guys can keep talking but like <laughs> we've got oh more than gosh. enough and it was just because he's such an awesome we had such a fun opportunity to connect it really was 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 so cool Oh, that's oh my gosh! I bet they can probably we can probably see that segment somewhere on Good Morning America's website oh, too, right? Absolutely, yes. Okay. You can find it on the GMA website. You can also find it on the Chase My Cure um, web, ChaseMyCure.com website as well. It's, I think it's actually the homepage. If you go on the homepage and scroll down yeah. a little bit, you'll see um, uh, the the interview. Definitely yeah. want to see that, David. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was so fun to join you guys. Thanks so much for having me and helping to spread the word. Oh, hey, thanks for being here. Thanks for all the great work. And um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I told you you're going to love them. I told oh, my gosh. You. And we got some of our rare disease friends have tuned in. So I'm so excited that all of the worlds have collided. And I was not shocked at all that now you're repurposing and working on COVID. So I'm so I'm so proud that, that you're a, a friend of mine and the work that you do. So thanks so much. And um, to everybody else out there, we will see you on the next episode of Brilliantly Resilient Live. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Brilliantly Resilient Podcast. Join our Facebook group and follow us on YouTube to be inspired with tools to reset, rise, and reveal your brilliance.